0: Well, would you do me a favor this morning, if you would to get started, if you're here this morning, would you raise your hand? Some Some of you are not sure, that's fine. Listen, if you're here this morning, here's what I know about you, by the fact that you raised your hand. If you're here this morning, you have experienced conflict uh, in your life. Conflict is a part of life. Uh, It ranges from the silly and the trivial and things we laugh about later on, things that we have inside jokes about, to sometimes conflict is incredibly painful and it's incredibly serious. Uh, but if you find yourself struggling this morning because, you know what, it's just been too long since you've had a good fight, right? Well, I'm going to give you some tips this morning. I came across a seven-step strategy this week on how to turn an ordinary conflict into extraordinary fight. So if that's your desire, it's been a little while since you've had a, had a good fight. You just got that kind of person who loves to fight and make up. Uh, listen, I'm going to help you this morning. So seven steps on how to take ordinary conflict and turn it into an extraordinary fight. Step number one. Be sure to develop and maintain a healthy fear of conflict, letting your own feelings build up so you're in an explosive frame of mind. Step number two, if you must state your concerns, be as vague and general as possible. Then the other person cannot do anything practical to change the situation. Step number three, assume you know all the facts and you are totally right. The use of a clenching Bible verse is very helpful. Speak prophetically for truth and justice. Do most of the talking. Step number four, with a touch of defiance, announce your willingness to talk with anyone who wishes to discuss the problem with you, but do not take steps to initiate such conversation. Step number five, latch tenaciously on to whatever evidence you can find that shows the other person is merely jealous of you. Step number six, judge the motivation of the other party on any previous experience that showed failure or unkindness. Keep track of angry words. Step number seven, if the discussion should, alas, become serious, view the issue as a win-lose struggle. Avoid possible solutions and go for total victory and unconditional surrender. Don't get too many options out there on the table. So, well, hey, that's the good advice. To maybe you wrote that down. I hope not. But if, this morning, uh, we're going to take an intentional detour out of the book of Romans. And we're going to continue the conversation that we started last week around unity and conflict. So way back when we planned the series at the beginning of the year, I knew I was going to take a detour and preach a message related to this issue. And so last week, uh, Paul was preaching in Romans 14 on the subject of unity. And specifically, unity in in areas that are what we would call secondary areas, areas that are not primary, uh, areas that it's okay to to disagree on some things. We learned uh, last week there's going to be some choices in the Christian life uh, where people disagree. There are going to become some situations where some people choose to abstain from an activity, not out of some self-righteousness or legalistic control in someone else, but because they think that by abstaining, God will get more glory. There are going to be other people on the very same issue who choose to exercise Christian liberty, not not to flaunt it, but because they think in doing so, God's glory will not be diminished. And they can do it with a clear conscience. And so uh, in the Roman church, they wanted Paul to make a ruling. They said, hey, Paul, some people are eating meat and some people are vegetarians. Hey, Paul, some people are drinking wine, some people are abstainers. And so Paul, being the apostle, why don't you just make a ruling and tell us who's right and who's wrong? And so Paul said, I'm not going to do that. Matter of fact, what I'm going to do is in these areas where you disagree, I'm going to teach you how to handle that conflict in a Christ-honoring way. And so that's what we looked through uh, last week at the beginning of chapter 14. So it's clear that there are guidelines on how to achieve unity. We just walked through that last week. It's clear that when I read like the book of Proverbs, which says this, there are seven things God hates. And he goes off this list. One of the things listed is someone who sows uh, seeds of discourse among the brethren. That's a Bible way of saying someone who stirs up trouble or disunity. And so it's clear that God is pro-unity. It's clear that scripture tells us how to be unified. Uh, It's clear that the visible witness of the church is damaged by disunity. And people hear about fights and church splits and all those kinds of things. So if the Bible is so clear and it's so practical and we're so aware of how damaging conflict can be, whether it's in a church, in a marriage, in a family, in an extended family, in a business transaction, whatever the case is. Here's the question. Why, amongst all that information, is there no shortage of conflict? I mean, it's just all around us. Uh, there's conflict in our marriages, conflict with our children. There's conflict in our workplace. There's conflict uh, in business transactions. I mean, listen, there's even a conflict in the church. And the church is where everybody's supposed to love everybody and everybody loves Jesus. And so how can there be conflict uh, in the midst of that? And so the title of last week's message uh, was... Can't we all just get along? And we talked about unity. And so this week, uh, i titled the message in James chapter 4. I've titled this message, Why We All Just Can't Get Along. If the Bible is so clear but yet it's so difficult. I'm going to walk us through this morning why conflict is so hard to resolve. Why uh, unity is so hard to achieve in a church, in a marriage with your children, with your boss, uh, whatever the case is, why it's so hard. And what we're going to do this morning, now uh, back at the beginning of the year uh, I taught a series called Next Level and I preached the message called Next Level Conflict out of James chapter 4, but quite honestly, I just kind of hit the surface and we looked at some practical things. This morning we're we're not looking so much at some of the practical things, we'll get to that. We're looking at what's going on in the heart. And so if you ever wonder why in cycles of conflict, what are they thinking? Why are they doing that? What's going on? We're going to answer that question this morning because there's no other passage in the entire New Testament that teaches why conflict happens in the heart than James chapter four. Okay, so this is totally a heart level uh, what's going on in cycles of conflict and why we all just can't get along sometimes James chapter 4, let's pick it up in verse 1. We'll read this morning down through verse 12. Verse 1 says, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desire for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your own pleasures." Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hearts, you sinners. And purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? And so this passage uh, reveals the common human pattern. And so in looking through this, uh, we see a fourfold strategy or process of what happens in the midst of conflict. And so what, here's what happens. This pattern is true regardless of context. It doesn't matter if it's between a parent and a child, a husband and a wife, an employer, and an employee, whatever the case is. This is the pattern that's going on in the heart, regardless of what the conflict is. Because here's what we do. We deceive ourselves and say the problem is not what's going on in my heart. The problem is what's going on in the other person. The problem is if they would just do this and they would do that, then the conflict would solve itself. And we all the time totally deceive, thinking that the context is the problem. But this passage is going to blow that idea out of the water. So it doesn't matter what the conflict is. This is what's going on in the heart Despite the context. And so I'm going to walk you through this morning four progressions of conflict in the heart that happened. Progression number one is simply this. The first step is I desire. I desire. And one of the reasons we have such a difficult time resolving conflict is because we're ignorant to the source of it. We think that it's totally what the other person did, totally what they said. If they wouldn't have said that, or they wouldn't have treated me that way, we wouldn't be in the midst of this conflict. And so the problem is, what, is something wrong with them. And so we, we can't solve it because we're ignorant as to what the true source is. Now, can someone sin against us? Absolutely. Everybody in this room has been sinned against. But the reality is, even though we're sinned against, we still have the choice of whether or not we wade into conflict. Reminds me of the quote of one of my all-time favorite quotes from anybody, pastor, anybody, uh, Chuck Swindoll. And Chuck Swindoll said this. He said, life is 10% what happens to me and 90% how we respond. Is that not true? Every now and then Chuck gets it right. Amen? Like if he just, you know, one day he's going to be something. So I just love that quote. And it's so true with conflict. The problem in conflict is this. We think that 90% of it is what the other person did. And 10% is how we respond. We reverse that whole thing. And we can't solve it because we don't even know the source of it. So we try and manage it. But we can't. But we can't kill it. Why? Because we're ignorant as to the source. You say, what's the source of conflict? It says right here in the text. Chapter 4, verse 1. Where do wars and fights come from among you? And everybody in this room has asked that question at some point in time. What, what, why are we why are we fighting again? What, what what's going on here? What What is happening? What's listen? And he gives the answer. He asks the question. He gives the answer. Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war inside of you? Now, what we want that to say does it not come from the stupid thing they did or said? Right? Does it not come from the way they sin to get you? But he doesn't say that. He said, does it not come from inside of you and the desire that's waging war inside of your own heart? And so those verses teach that the source of conflict has nothing to do with my heart or what someone else did or, or actually everything to do with my heart and little with what the other person did. Now, why is that? It's because our heart is the wellspring of Everything. That whatever's inside of my heart is going to overflow in my life. You've heard me teach that over and over. Scripture says that. Matthew chapter 15 verse 19 says this. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, and slander. Proverbs 4.23, my favorite Bible verse, says this. Above all else, guard your heart because it alone determines the course of your life. And so whatever is in your heart is going to show up in your life. There's no denying that scripture is so clear about that. And so what's in my heart is, is some desire. That's what verse one says. You say, well, what's in conflict. I mean, conflict's not my heart. I don't, listen, I don't want conflict. No one likes conflict. Conflict's not my heart. But yet, conflict's what keeps coming out of there. So what's in my heart that's causing conflict? It's the desires in my own heart. Now, let me speak to you about desires. Because sometimes we're confused about what desires. Some of those desires are, are listen, are good things. They're God-given things. They're the way that God has wired us up. If you have a desire to feel loved as a wife and respect of a husband, guess what? Ephesians chapter 5 says that's the way God designed it. If you have a desire that your children respect you and honor you and obey you, listen, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1 says that's the way that God designed it. If you have a desire that the people that work for you would would respect you and work hard and be a good employee, Ephesians chapter 6 says that's the way that God designed it. If you have a desire to feel valued and loved and accepted, all those things. listen, nothing wrong with that. And so sometimes there are honest, God given desires, they're healthy things, there's nothing wrong with those, then sometimes they're just plain selfish desires. And it's greed and it's vengeance and it's control and it's lust. And so there are two types of desires waging war inside of you. Some of those are selfish, sinful desires, but some of those are honest, God-given desires that are not wrong. But the reality is oftentimes those desires are met. And so conflict begins to happen as the natural overflow of that reality. And so sometimes you, uh, how, do you, how do you preventative maintenance against that? Uh, open communication. Listen, if you find yourself in conflict because sometimes there's a lack of expectation, clarity, you should sit down and say, you know what? I have the desire to feel loved and accepted or respected or whatever the case is or affirmed or valued. And, and this is how I receive that. This is how I hear that. And so, but often we don't do that. We, we don't have that honest communication or wait in the season of conflict. And then the content of our communication is lost in a sea of conflict. And sometimes the other person doesn't respond. And so you suffer for the glory of God. You pursue righteousness anyway. And God says, hey, listen, when that person doesn't respond righteously, when you communicate, you know what? If you'll take that trial and you draw close to me at the right time and you seek me, I'll shape you and mold you and transform you uh, through that trial. The other choice is, you, say, you know what? I'm not going to run to God. I'm just going to get over here and I'm going to get better. But the reality is it all starts off, listen, that conflict has nothing to do with what the other person did or what they said. Conflict starts off in a heart desire, could even be a good desire, a godly desire. But all of a sudden that desire grows and then conflict is on when that desire is not met. And so once a desire, even if it's a good one, begins to dominate your life, it moves to step two in the process of conflict, which is this. I demand. I demand. And unmet desires work their way into our hearts deeper and deeper. And that's especially true when we see a desire as something we need or something we deserve or something we're entitled to. And that's when the uh, conversations like this, day, you know, what? I, I work so hard for us. I deserve to come home and, you know, the like whatever that is. And so those desires, when I want to come home to a certain environment, I want to experience a certain response from my spouse or my child or my boss or whoever the conflict is with, the person I'm in church with. But when that desire grows to the point where it begins to dominate our life, when that desire grows to the point that it becomes an obsession in our lives and we deceive ourselves and here's what we think. I can't feel loved unless that desire is met. I can't feel valued unless that desire is met. I can't feel accepted unless that desire is met. I can't feel respected unless that desire is met. And all of a sudden, that honest, God-given desire grows into something that we would call a demand. Do you know what the person thinks when a desire has grown to a demand? you know what the thought process is of the person who's making that demand? Here's what they think from the other person. They may say it. Sometimes I've had people just blurt it out, but they're always thinking it. They're always behaving in such a way that they believe it's true. What they're thinking is this. You owe me. After what you did and after what you said and after what you, listen, you owe me. You owe that these desires are met. You owe me. And so that desire begins to grow into a demand and that demand is ruthlessly pursued and it requires payment and that payment is costly you see where do you find that out where desire grows in demand verse two you lust and do not have you know what lust is Unfortunately, we define lust only in the sexual and listen lust is anything that i want more than god lust is anything that i pursue and it's what i when i wake up i think about it. when i go to bed i think about it lust is the thing that i pursue after that is not god that i think if i have it then i'll then my desires will be met And so lust is an obsession on anything other than the person of God. He says you lust and you don't have, and then go down into verse three. He says you ask and you don't receive because you ask him this. Why? Because you spend it on your own personal pleasures. You're just chasing after something that your heart is lusting after and you're trying to justify it and say, listen, it's just an honest, God given desire. And hear me this morning. Most often in conflict, it's not what we want that's bad. It's the fact that we want it too much. And if there's someone doesn't provide it, there's going to be conflict in order to obtain it. And so conflict always starts off in my own heart as irregardless of what the other person did or said. It's, they, you know, there's a desire inside of me. could be a good one. could be a selfish one. That desire is not met. It begins to consume me. And I think I can't feel happy. I can't feel uh, secure. I can't feel whatever the blank fill in the blank is. And so that has now grown into a demand. And I will obtain that lust will be satisfied no matter what the cost, no matter what the collateral damage is in any relationship. That demand will be met. Now, Scripture uses a word uh, to describe that type of demand. When you get to a place that says, listen, I can only achieve whatever you're trying to achieve through your demands. I can only achieve it if this happens, if I have this, if I get this response, whatever the case is. Listen, the Bible calls that an idol. Scripture calls that an idol. And most often, an idol is not a bad thing in and of itself. It's when a good thing becomes a God thing. You know what an idol does? An idol deceives us. And what the idol, how it deceives us, is it promises us to do things for us that actually only God can do. And so we, we begin to pursue those things. And if I do that, then I'll feel loved and I'll feel accepted and I won't have fear and I'll have security and I'll have all these things. And listen, at the end of the day, only God can provide all those things. And if you don't find your value and your worth and who Jesus Christ is and what he did for you, you'll spend your whole life chasing things that won't provide it. And finally, you'll come to the end of your rope and you'll hit rock bottom. You'll bounce back up or you'll stay down. But the reality is that all start off with a desire that grew into a demand. So scripture says, I desire and I demand. And that trouble begins to set in. And so let me give you some Bible references in understanding idolatry. I don't have time to read all the verses, but I will give you the verses where I got this out of. Uh, so you can understand this is not just my opinion. This is actually what Scripture teaches on the subject of idolatry. In biblical terms, an idol is described as following. An idol is anything other than God that we set our heart on. Luke 12:29. Could be a good thing. But listen, when a good thing becomes a God thing, that's an idol. Anything other than God we set our heart on. Luke 12:29. An idol is anything that motivates us to certain behavior or attitudes. You know, some people waste their whole life at work and trying to climb line all those kinds of things. It's not because they're always hard charging or you know want to provide for the family and all those moral motives. Listen, sometimes it's because they want someone to come along and affirm and ascribe value to them based on their job performance. And so what's driving that behavior at the sacrifice of their family is not hard work and dedication and providing. Listen, it's I want to feel successful so I can get affirmation and I'm going to chase that idol. The idol of their heart is affirmation and I'm going to chase it until I get it, no matter what the collateral damage is. And so anything that motivates us to certain behavior, attitudes, 1 Corinthians 4, 5. Anything that masters and rules us, Ephesians 5, 5. Anything, this is, I love this one. Anything that we trust, fear, or serve—Isaiah 42:17, Matthew 6:24, Luke 12: verses 4 and 5. Anything we trust, fear, or serve is an idol in our life. And lastly, anything we love and pursue in the place of God—Philippians 3:19. Now, now, here, here's the hard part. How do you discern? When an honest desire, maybe it's not a selfish, maybe it's a good desire, maybe it's a you know, God-given desire. When an honest desire has grown to the place where it's turned into a sinful demand. Listen, that's incredibly difficult. And the reason it's so difficult is because Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, says that our heart is incredibly wicked and deceitful and it deceives us all the time. And so when I go out idol hunting in my own heart, what happens is often you encounter multiple layers of disguise. That's not wrong, that's a good thing. Disguise, Multiple layers of justification. Yes, you're pursuing that probably too much, but, but certainly God understands that's what they did or the childhood you had or how your boss treated you. Fill in the blank. You know, whatever the case is. And so how often, how do you find out when a desire has grown into a sinful demand? Well, you look for the next two steps in the process. And the first one is simply this. So it's I desire, I demand. And thirdly, I judge. I desire, I demand demand. I judge. And you've heard me say this so many times. Listen, the Bible is not against judging as a whole. There are times Scripture actually causes us to judge or discern. Scripture says mark those who cause division and stay away from them. Scripture says when someone's clearly unrepentant about something, you remove them from the fellowship of the church so as not to damage the testimony of the church. 1 Corinthians 5, Matthew 18. Scripture talks about marking those who are false teachers. So judge not is not, think not, or discern not. But it does caution and warn against some types of sinful judging. And those types would be uh, judging uh, habitually, just being a fault finder, a critical person, trying to condemn other people, judging other people's motives. And that's the kind of judging that happens in a source of conflict. I had a desire it was not a selfish desire. It was a God-given desire. I wanted to feel blank. I had a need blank, or whatever it is. I had a desire. That desire overtook me to come to a place where it became into a demand. And then when you don't meet that demand, even when I make it obvious, there must be something wrong with you. You must not love me. You must not care for me. You must be with someone else. You must... And all these things. And so I judge. Look at verse 11 and 12. What's he saying? Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge a law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. And then verse 12, he says, there is one lawgiver who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? He said, well, some judging is what type of judges. Is this? this is judging someone's motive. You, you, you didn't meet my demand. Or this is condemning someone. Listen, God, you a little secret this morning. You can get as angry as you want at somebody else. You don't have the authority to condemn anyone. That's way above your pay grade. But That's exactly what we do in conflict. I have a desire. You didn't meet that desire. That desire overtook me. It grew into a demand. And you didn't meet my demands. And so I judge you. There must be something wrong with you. If you're doing that, if you're not meeting those desires, author and counselor, Dave Pallison says we judge others. Speaking of this verse, he says we criticize, we nitpick, we nag. We attack and we condemn because we literally play God. He said, when you judge, you're none other than a God wannabe. He said, we act exactly like the adversary who seeks to usurp God's throne and who acts as an accuser of the brethren. Now, listen to this. This is this incredibly wise statement he makes. Here's what he said. He said, when you and I fight, our minds become filled with accusations. Oh, I know what's going on. Oh, I, I know why you did that. I know why you came home late. I know why you said that. I know why you're doing that. I know I know what's going on. And you don't. You don't. He said, but our minds become filled with accusations. Listen to this. Your wrongs and my rights preoccupy me. Your wrongs and my rights preoccupy me. And so when our desire comes to a place where it's grown to a demand and met by the other person is not responsive to that demand, then what happens is this. We judge their motives. We judge them. We ascribe them as someone of low character, someone who oh, there's something wrong in their heart. And instead of giving people room for disagreement or failure, we rigidly impose our expectations. And in effect, we call them to give allegiance to our idols. And if they won't, we just sit back and say, well, then something must be wrong with you. Something must be wrong. Now, if you find yourself assigning motives that you really don't know and you don't, or assuming that something is wrong with the other person's character is the reason they're not meeting their expectations. Listen, that is a warning sign. That's a red flag. That it listen. the gauge of your heart should be all the way tripped over and say, "You're assigning motives. you don't even know you're condemning someone when you don't have the authority to do that, because they didn't meet some desire. Guess what? That is a clear warning sign that an idol has taken up root in your heart, and its idols always demand sacrifices. And the person, there's nothing wrong with them. The problem is that an idol has taken root in your heart and deceived you. And sometimes it can be hard to discern between a reasonable biblical expectation or desire to demand. And so there's an indicator that when I start judging other people's motives, when I start ascribing things that I don't know, when I start condemning them, nitpicking, nagging, habitually fault-finding, all those things that's sinful judging, that's a warning sign that an idol's taken root. But here's one, one way you can know for a fact that an idol's taken root. The fourth step, which is this. I punish. I desire, James chapter 4, verse 1. I demand, verses 3, verses 2, verses 1. I judge, verses 11 and 12. I punish, verse 2. Idols always demand sacrifices. Idols always demand that someone else should suffer until their sacrifice is given. Listen to the terms described in verse 2. You lust you do not have, that's that's a demand, not a desire. Listen, lust is always wrong. It's a demand, sinful demand. You listen to these words. You murder, that's the total fulfillment of demanding. You covet, you can't obtain, you fight, you war. Some of you think you've been peeking in our windows, right? And the punishment described here, the murder, the war, it may not be literal, but, but just reality is you, you go to, listen, you go to great lengths is the point he's made. Even some folks in this context, he said some folks will even go to the place of murder to have a demand met. It's that strong that if the other person doesn't meet their demand, they'll take their life. He says you go to war over these demands. You fight over these demands. And when our demands aren't met, I punish the other person. Is murder a punishment? For yes. Warring against them, one punishment. Yes, you fight. Why? Because you didn't meet my demands. Yeah, I'm going to punish you. And this punishment can take many forms. Sometimes uh, we're uh, just open anger, lashing out and hurtful words. There's, There's no secret like how you feel, right? Like they're they're just openly just tearing the other person out, saying the most nasty, hurtful things you can say to punish them because they didn't meet some demand. So you judge their motives and based on your assessment of their motives that you don't know, but based on your assessment of their motives, you condemn them. And when a condemned person, they deserve punishment. And so sometimes it's open. There's no question you're punishing another person. But oftentimes our idols deceive us to the point where it becomes very subtle. Our idols don't give up easily, so it's a more subtle Things like shutting a person out emotionally. Things like withholding emotional or physical affection. You know what those are? They're just subtle forms of punishment. We comfort ourselves and say, listen, I'm not out wishing bad on them. I'm not out pursuing vengeance against them." because the Bible clearly teaches that. No, but what you're exactly doing is the Bible also teaches against you're repaying evil with evil. We just talked about a few weeks ago. And so the open sometimes, but sometimes it's incredibly subtle. hear me this morning, inflicting pain on someone else is the surest sign that an idol is ruling our hearts. And so how do we, how do we fix that? how, How do we, so I get it. I understand that it's really not about what the other person did or said or didn't do and this, should all this. But I understand at the end of the day, it's a desire in my life that went so out of control that when they didn't meet it, I ascribed a motive to them. And they, they're a terrible person. So terrible people deserve to be punished. And so I, you know, say the worst nasty things I can say or I just remove myself and withhold affection. You know, I use sex as a weapon, all those things. And so well, how, do, how do I fix that? Well, God doesn't leave us left to our own limited devices. Uh, God helps us deliver from idols. Three, three tools God uses in the process of extracting an idol from our heart. And these are not, listen, these, I'm going to say these things. You're not going to go, oh, those are, I've never heard of those before, right? These are incredibly common things. It's what God uses. First off, God uses the word. He uses his Bible. The Bible is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit joints tomorrow. Listen to this. That's Hebrews 4.12. Listen to this. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And so when your own heart deceives you and you've actually have demands that are driven by idolatry, but you're justifying, say, no, these are normal, reasonable desires and your own heart deceives you. What Hebrews 4.12 says is the word of God is like a spiritual scalpel carving and extracting those things out. And what I'm holding in my hand, you've heard me say so many times, is not a curriculum to be mastered. It is a mirror to be gazed into. Does anyone in the room know someone who is incredibly knowledgeable about the Bible, but is nasty? Does anybody know anybody like that? I'm the only one in a room full of liars, I guess. All right. And yes, I just ascribed a motive. (laughs) You know why? It's because those people sit back and they can write off dates and times and dispensations and kingdoms and kings and all those things. But they never, they just look at the curriculum, look at all the facts I know, but they never use it as a scalpel to dissect their own heart. Now, let me tell you how I know if you're doing that very thing this morning. Some of you are sitting here this morning. Oh, this is a, this is a good message. Some of you are like, it's a bad message. I don't like it. Right? But some of you are sitting here thinking this. I know someone needs to hear this. I'm you not know I do too. His name is you. And so God uses the word as a spiritual scalpel when my own heart has deceived me. This week I heard uh, someone teaching on the radio. I was listening to a sermon on the radio. And they said something. I'm just going to tell you this. They said something and I received it from Scripture. And it was the most probably powerful and challenging thing I've heard in, in several years that applied to me in person. I think, thank God I needed that. And so God uses the word. God uses his spirit. Listen, the spirit searches our hearts. It convicts us of sin. It illuminates us truth spirit guides us. Listen, and the spirit of God is how the word of God comes alive. It talks about the word of God being quickened or coming alive in our hearts. And so the spirit of God searches our hearts. And lastly, God uses the church. God has put, listen, the reason God places you into relationships in the context of the church is because surprisingly you have some spiritual blind spots in your life. And when people get up close to you, they can see those when your own heart deceived you. And in the context of relationships, that's where permission is granted to speak into your life. And so if you come here and every week you just come in, I'm going to get my Jesus thing. I'm going to, you know, those, but I'm not going to build any relationships. I'm not going to get any involved. I don't want anyone in my business. And hear me this morning. You will never grow to the full potential that God into your heart will not be transformed. Because one of the ways that God changes us is through the community of redemption. And you may think I don't need the church, but hear me this morning. If you think that, you desperately need the church. If you think that, and so Scripture says that God uses people to speak truth into our lives, and it only happens when we're in close community with them. That's why we're always challenging you: get in groups, build relationships, do this thing. Listen, I don't get—I don't get a bonus every year based on how many people get into groups. It's not for my benefit. But Scripture says very clearly, if a man is overtaken in any sin, you who are spiritual, restore them in the spirit of Genesis. Can I tell you, based on personal experience, you can't over, uh, help someone who's overtaken in sin from a distance. You can sit back and say, that's a real shame and I can't believe that happened. But listen, you can only help someone who's tangled in sin up close. Close enough to reach your hand out and grab theirs. So those are the tools that God uses. And then here's the cure for idolatry. In his book, Future Grace, John Piper teaches this. He said, sin is what you do when you're not fully satisfied in God. Is that not true? Sin is what you do when you're not fully satisfied in God. So I'm going to go chase after something that I think will give me greater satisfaction. Listen, the great temptation of sin is this. The great temptation of sin is God's holding out on you. I mean, listen, in the garden, in Genesis chapter three, when the serpent came along, what did he tell Adam and Eve? God said, don't do this. How did he deceive them? That's not going to happen. God knows you're going to come like him. God God knows you're going to be like a God. God's holding out on you. And they took it. And so sin is what you do when you're not fully satisfied with God. And the same thing is true of idolatry. Idolatry is what we do, what we chase after. We're not fully satisfied with God. So what do we do when our actions clearly give testimony to that reality? Three things. And uh, and uh really simple and practical the first one is simply this is you repent and you say Pastor, that, that, that that's always the answer and I say, yeah." That it always starts off with repentance. It's always coming. Listen, there's confession. Confess means to agree with God about my sin. But then I move to a place of repentance because, listen, you can't stand before a holy God and hold up an idol and protect it and disguise it and nurture it in the holiness of God. He exposes that. And I come to a place and say, God, I've chosen something else. Something else is more important to me as evidenced by all the conflict I have. It's more important than you are. And when you lay that idol down and walk away from it and walk towards God, that's called repentance. You say, is that in the text or is that just your opinion? You know the answer It's in the text. Look at verse 8. Second part there. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Isn't that a great sermon title? That's my title of my Easter message this year. Bring all your friends. They'll love it. <laughs> Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be... Hey, can I just ask you? This just came to mind. Can you just picture Joel Osteen reading these verses? <laughs> Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy into gloom. You know why those verses are so strong? It's because the closest times you are with the Lord in your life, are not all happy, clappy and smiling. The closest times you ever be with the Lord in your life, when you come into the true encounter with His holiness, is facing the dirt repentance. Every single time someone came into contact with the presence of God in the Scripture, they fell in their face. Isaiah chapter 6, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Because you can't come in the presence of a holy God and hold on to an idol and smile. And so repentance is the first step. When God begins to reveal that an idol has taken root in my heart as evidenced by my actions, repentance. And then what after, after I repent of that idol, idolatry, the second thing is to replace the idol. second thing is to replace the idol. John Calvin uh, said this he said our hearts are idol making factories I agree and so what happens is this if you uproot that idol and I'm not going to do that and I'm grieved by that but you never replace it with delighting in Christ and Jesus Christ doesn't become the center of your affections guess what that empty dirt that where you pull that weed out another weed will spring up and that will become another idol and you'll pull it out in another idol. And until you come to a place where you replace your idolatry with delighting God, idols will keep springing up and springing up and spring up in your life over and over and over. And you can grit your teeth all you want. But every person in this room has said something along these lines. I will never do that again, only to do that very thing again. Why? Because that idol has the same demands. You say, where do you find that out in the text? Look at chapter four, look at verse eight. Here's the prescription. Draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. You know what happens when I draw near to God? The psalmist said this. He said in the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. You know what joy is? It's, it's joy is despite my circumstances, my heart is completely satisfied. When does that happen? In the presence of God. Delighting in God. Listen, not delighting in what God can do for me, but delighting in who he is. In the presence of God, there is fullness of joy. And when there is joy, my heart is settled. And when my heart is settled, I'm not out chasing after idols, thinking they're going to do something for me that only God can do. Piper also said, God is most glorified in us when we're most satisfied in him. So you repent, you replace with delighting in God. And lastly, you reconcile. This whole thing's about conflict. And so you pursue reconciliation. This is where it moves from internal to external. Now, here's the reality. If I told you that to repent and replace idolatry with delighting in God and that was the end of it, you would you would know there's a missing step. What about the person I'm in conflict with? You've got to run towards them and reconcile that relationship Repentance is internal, delighting in God is internal, but conflict has not been fully been resolved for the glory of God until I pursue reconciliation with the other person. And so why don't we do that? It's because of our own pride keeps us more interested in being right than it does in being reconciled. You know how I know that's true? Because let me play out a scenario that everybody in this room has experienced. You ever been in a conflict or an argument or what we called our house an intense moment of fellowship? And you're heated and you're saying stuff and they're saying stuff. And at a point in time, the light comes on and you realize I'm wrong. And what do you do? Keep trucking ahead. Amen. I mean, just just put the pedal down even more. <laughs> that panic feeling like inside, we're like, oh, my goodness, they're right. And I'm wrong. Just keep going. Right. If you're off the cliff, what's the matter? right? just keep going. That's what we think. You know what forces you to do that? Where you're more interested in being right than you are in being reconciled? It's your own sinful pride. What's verse 10 say? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. And He'll lift you up. Some of you are so broken and beat down with conflict that you can't pick yourself up. Here's the good news. If you'll humble yourself and do what God asks you to do instead of what your sinful desire wants you to do, Scripture says when you humble yourselves, He'll lift you up. He'll do what only He can do. He'll fix that thing that everyone else says is broken and it's all for His glory when He does. And so there's no question about it. You're going to experience conflict. But when you stand face to face with conflict, just remember what someone very wise said when they said this. You can't change what's going on around you until you change What's going on inside of you? You can't change what's going on around you until you change what's going on inside of you because that's where it's coming from. And so let's ask God to help us do that very thing right now. Would you bow your heads and pray with me this morning?